you've reached the Every Little Thing helpline. Please leave your message after the tone. Bum 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 bum. Hello ELT, Laszlo here. I hope I didn't wake you up. I'm calling from Vienna, Austria, the home of Mozart. I was at a classical music concert this weekend and I have a lot of questions about that. Has a conductor ever fallen off the stage? They move so energetically. Do all musicians get the same paycheck in an orchestra? I saw some just play a few notes in the whole piece. I have many more questions. Love you, show. Thank you. Bye. Hello. Guten Tag, Laszlo. It's Flora from Every Little Thing. Guten Tag, Flora. Hi. Hi. <laughs> nice to hear you. Likewise. So, Laszlo, in America, the symphony orchestra is kind of a niche interest. Mm -hmm. It's like a pastime enjoyed by people who also go to yacht races and play Baccarat in <laughs> Monaco. So you will have only a few listeners to this episode of your <laughs> podcast. Well, what's it like in Austria? Well, you know, in Austria, every New Year at 11 o'clock, there is this New Year's concert. Do you gather around the TV to watch it or to hear it? Absolutely. It's, it's really amazing. And the whole family is listening to it. And after the concert, you have the New Year's uh, lunch with schnitzel. And so it's, it's part of your life here in Austria. You said in your message that you went to a classical concert recently. Yes. <laughs> so this year, my parents-in-law, for Christmas as a present, they gave us tickets for a special concert, which uh, took five hours. Ooh, five hours. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so yes, I don't mind classical concert, but <laughs> I started to sweat when I heard that it's five hours. And I tried to convince my wife that we need to leave during the break. But of course, those are tickets from my parents-in-law and you are not supposed to bail out. So your wife rejected that idea? Uh, yeah, uh, she rejected that idea. But at the end of the day, it was really a nice concert. And I, I told my parents-in-law that it was a very nice concert and I thanked them very much. I'm glad that that's on the record. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm glad as well. <laughs> But of course, yeah, during the five hours, some questions popped up in my head. So I thought this would be interesting to ask you. We are here for you, Laszlo. Great. To field all of your orchestral questions, we have assembled a petite elite ensemble. Oh. So let me introduce you to our first guest on the violin. All right. This is for Laszlo. Ah. This is Akiko Teramoto. Hey, Laszlo. Oh, hello. <laughs> nice to hear you. Akiko plays for the Los Angeles Philharmonic, mm -hmm. and she's the fourth chair violinist, also known as the assistant concertmaster. Have you heard of this title, the concertmaster? No. 
The first chair violinist is the concertmaster, and that is the highest-ranking person in the orchestra. Ah. And Akiko is basically fourth in line to the throne. Yeah, I think I'd be sort of like like a lowly Marquess or something. I wouldn't be particularly high up in the in the order. So she's waiting for three people to get at least sick. Or die. <laughs> or die. <laughs> Here to harmonize with Akiko is Rob Capolo. Uh, he's waving his hands from the podium. Hi, Laszlo. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Rob has been conducting orchestras longer than he's been drinking Gruner Veltliner. <laughs> The very first thing I ever conducted was My Fair Lady at the Summer Camp Musical. Uh, This was a very big production. You know, we actually had an orchestra, and there were like five or 600 people there. And I still remember this moment. Um, There's a song there that Freddie Einsford Hill sings called On the Street Where We Live. And this young kid was really, really nervous. And he came out, and he sang the entire first line, a full octave too high. So he walked out (laughs) and sang, I am off in and you could feel an entire audience just react in horror. But it was really it was sort of one of the first difficult moments as a conductor, and it prepares you for a long career of moments like that. <laughs> so let's get to what you called us about, the dirt from the pit, the pit dirt. Mm-hmm. What, would you, what would be a good phrase for that in German? Uh, die, die verruchten Geheimnisse eines Orchesters. Yeah. Die, verborg, die, die verborgenen Geheimnisse. This orchestras. <laughs> I wish I knew what you were saying. <laughs> uh, it's the top secrets of orchestra. Okay, that's a ti- that should be a title for my new book, right? But that would end my career if I told the true story. Well, I hope you're ready to end your career today. <laughs> I'm sorry for him, but it needs to be. Let's do it. So we ran a bunch of your questions by Rob and Akiko. Let's start with your top burning question. Has a conductor ever fallen off the stage? I myself have never fallen off. I have had my baton fly out of my hand many times. My glasses have fallen off. So Rob hasn't. What about other conductors? Absolutely. If you're gesticulating wildly and you're very involved in this performance, it's very easy to not know where the back of the podium is. Oh, so it happened already. I'm sending you a link to a video. Ah, yes. Now I have it. Interesting. Okay, so the video is from a performance of an opera called Barbarossville. The orchestra's in the pit, and then standing in front of them on this mini platform is the conductor. And he is very energetically waving that baton and doing his thing. Oh! (laughs) Okay, he disappeared. (laughs) Keep watching. Ah, but he survived. Yeah, he made it back to the stage. Yeah, he survived. So, yes, conductors fall off stages. You also asked about the slackers of the pit, like that one person who pings a triangle three times during the whole performance. Yes, absolutely. All the the guys at the uh, violins, they play for five hours. They sweat a lot and they work a lot. The drummer guy plays 10 minutes, so do they get all the the same payment? (laughs) Do all musicians get the same paycheck? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a base salary that all members get, regardless of how many notes they play. Oh, okay. Fancy concertmaster types can negotiate up from the base, but it's more about seniority than the number of notes played. One, one, so just a side question would be, when they play violins, always the second guy seems to turn the page 
for for the notes. So is he like a, like a Padawan in in Star Wars? Right. Is turning the pages of the sheet music like a burden for the lowly apprentice, or maybe it's an honor? It's not a burden exactly, but it's 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 the less the technically less important player who's supposed to do it. So it's not an honor, that's for sure. <laughs> put it that way. And because musicians who land an orchestra job tend to stay in that orchestra job, you could end up flipping the pages for your standmate for a long, long time. Oof. And that's, that is one of the tough things about the job. You don't get the change that's sort of normal in most jobs. And um, you have the same colleagues sometimes for decades. But what if you don't like the guy sitting beside you and you have to turn the pages for them? Yeah. Exactly. The same people working side by side, night after night, for decades. It means there's not always harmony in the pit. Robin Akiko said, there can be drama. It's like on a TV show then. (laughs) Yes. And like any reality TV show, there are big personalities and people like to play their roles. In fact, we heard from Robin Akiko that each section of the orchestra has its own reputation. The prima donnas are, of course, the violins. And particularly, violins in an orchestra are divided into two groups. There's the first violins and the second violins, and the true prima donnas are the first violins. They're the ones who play all the melodies. They're the ones who play the highest notes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're always kind of trying to figure out who's better. That's for real. I don't think that's a stereotype. I think that's like a real thing, speaking as a violinist. We also, the violins are sort of thought of as being a little bit more type A, kind of maybe literally high strung. You know, there are all sorts of stereotypes, like, you know, you don't even shake hands with them because they're always afraid of having their fingers damaged. You know, they wear gloves to avoid germs. (laughs) If you think the violins sound uptight, don't even get Rob and Akiko started on the oboes. Oboe, there is some dirt because they're they're pretty they're pretty neurotic. They take themselves pretty seriously. The oboe is the person who, by the way, gives the A at the beginning of a concert when the orchestra starts tuning. The oboe plays a single note, and everybody tunes to that note. They see themselves as the guardian of the pitch of the orchestra, which to an outsider, like you guys, need to get over yourselves. The preserver of the last clear note. Exactly. But there's another reason why the oboes have a reputation for being uptight. Now, you also have to understand about oboes, they have a particular kind of reed that they have to make themselves. So basically, an entire oboe player's life is devoted to making reeds. That's why they are socially inept, is sort of the standard cultural stereotype, because they spend their entire life in a room with a knife and a little thin piece of wood that their entire life depends on having carved perfectly. And so their life is really an utter search for the perfect reed um, and the perfect tool to create the perfect reed. So they need to be also an expert for wood carving. Yeah. Now, again, these are all, I just want to reiterate so that, you know, my life as a conductor doesn't end, that these are only stereotypes to which I disavow any connection whatsoever. (laughs) Then you have the tubas, the trombones, the big brass. 
They have their own reputation. You've probably heard the term brass holes. You said it, not me. Really? That's the term for... That's shocking. The brass section are the rowdy, you know, drunkards of the orchestra. They're the ones who use the most four-letter words. You know, they're the the sort of crudest people in the orchestra. Now, again, these are just cultural stereotypes. I would never say that this is true of the brass section of any orchestra I will ever conduct, and I will deny ever any having had this conversation in any way. We are recording, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) So if the violins are the prima donnas and the tubas and trombones are the rowdy bros, there has to be a section at the bottom of the pecking order. The losers, yeah. (laughs) We'll find out which section gets dumped on the most after the break. Okay, Laszlo, what's your guess? Which section do you think is at the very bottom of the pit pecking order? So the drummer guy uh, needs to be one. <laughs> it's not the drummers. Then who? Um, violas are always kind of the butt of the string jokes. The violas. There are more viola jokes than probably any other group of people in the universe. For centuries, violas have been the butt of jokes. Why? I think the joke centers around the idea that people who fail at violin become viola players. Ah. And so there is this sense that it was a second choice, and perhaps that's why they're the butt of all these jokes. What's the best viola joke you've heard? Um, oh my goodness, let me think for a second. What's the best viola joke? Okay, um, how can you tell if a violist is playing out of tune? You can see the bow moving. <laughs> What's the difference between a viola and a coffin? Coffins have dead people on the inside. Um, once again, I disavow any connection to any of these comments about violas whatsoever. My wife plays the viola. Um, so again, I, I disavow. These are just cultural stereotypes that I frown upon. And do not cut that part. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry for the violas. They are also an essential part. Huh? I agree. Okay, I have to look more for the violas next time I'm going to a concert. Make eye contact. <laughs> yes. Thumbs up, show them. I I need to get tickets in the first row. (laughs) So you have the divas, you have the drunken boys, and then you have the the guys who they make jokes on. (laughs) But Laszlo, there is one other person in the orchestra who is loathed more than any other. Do you want to guess who it is? Is it the conductor? (laughs) It's Rob. (laughs) (laughs) It's truly right that orchestra players hate conductors. Um, mostly orchestras feel that they could do better without them. And, and, and they're right in a way. I mean, the conductor is the one who's the highest profile, the one who's getting the, the limousine, the dressing room, the highest pay, jetting from orchestra to orchestra. And he's the only one who's actually not making a sound. Akiko had to agree. We always wish, we always joke about like the big butterfly net or like, you know, like the button you can push or the trap door would open there, just, just, just disappear. <laughs> like in the Batman car, ejection seat. Exactly. So the orchestra loves to hate on the conductor, but Akiko said the musicians also have great respect for good conductors. It's just a very, very rare thing for someone to be great at conducting. Really? Oh, totally. Yeah. What does it take? 
Um, there has to be just so many things that align. They have their, they have to have a certain magnetism. They have to be egomaniacs. I mean, that's just even though it's a stereotype, it's like it's not a natural thing to want to do. I don't think to to be the person who's responsible really for all of this that's going on. And then on top of that, you know, to be actually to have the skill to be able to keep all the musical lines in place. And when you see a great conductor, you're suddenly like, my God, I had no idea. You know, they'll say second bassoon, you know, I don't hear that F sharp or something. And we have conductors who are in their eighties who can do that, you know, and it's like unbelievable. Ah, okay. So for me, the question is, uh, What's what's the role of the conductor? <laughs> the conductor brings the vision for how the music should be played. And but what is this vision? I, I thought Mozart or Beethoven already wrote it into the notes. So Rob said that the conductor goes through the music and interprets what is written in the score mm -hmm. and then makes all these decisions about what those directions mean exactly. Ah. You know, if you take a very common notation, at the beginning of a piece of music, it might say allegro. That means cheerful. Well, how fast is cheerful? Well, if you've got an orchestra of 75 players, 75 players might have a different idea of how fast cheerful is. Someone has to decide. And that's what the conductor does. So it's a million little decisions. Let me, let me just go to the piano for one second. Hold on. Our piano is way out of tune. Um, Rob illustrated this on his piano. He this. used the example of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Ah, dee 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 something like this. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Then you have the famous. Now there are so many conducting issues right there. First of all, the way it's written is, as I say, it's allegro con brio. Now, does that mean fast like this? Does it mean ponderous and majestic? I'm now about to introduce the most important symphony ever written in history. So even that has not only to do with how fast you think Allegro Cambrio is, but what do you think the purpose of these measures are? Is it part of the regular piece? Is it saying, welcome to this new universe that I'm creating for you by Beethoven? Should it be slow and majestic and heavy and saying, I am Beethoven? Or is it part of this fleet Allegro con Brio? I'm going to hit you over the head with this radical beginning. But then, obviously, there are different interpretations uh, for, for the same piece then. Yes. <laughs> I think it needs to be slow and majestic. I am Beethoven. That's how I would conduct it. Really slow and so. Do, 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 do. I am here. Like Das Vader. <laughs> So, Akiko said that when a conductor is on his or her game, they can really transform a performance. If someone's really great, then they, you know, it's, it's they're becoming sort of a conduit for our playing to become something greater than just individuals. You know, you're, you're part of a we, and you're no longer a me. Everyone is so on the same page that it, you don't even know who's leading and who's following.
you know, to, to feel like magically you have aligned with all these other people who's, you know, totally different people with totally different things going on in their lives. And yet in that moment, everyone was was maybe feeling the same thing at the same moment. Which is like, yeah, it feels it feels like a magic trick. So amazing. Uh, just one question. I don't know whether you know the answer. Sometimes a piece ends and then no one claps. You always have to look for the others. Is it not allowed to clap or not? But I would like to clap. I don't know when do you have to clap. Rob had very strong feelings about that. There's this tradition that you're not supposed to clap between movements which really alienates people who are coming for the first time. Because say a symphony has four different movements, and there's a little pause in between all those movements. If you're a newcomer, you come, and the first movement ends, and it's big and titanic, bum, 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 and you clap. It's like the most human thing in the world. And then like 50 people look at you like you forgot your shoes. You know, how could you be so dumb? And it's like a mark of being an insider that you're supposed to know that you're not supposed to clap, which is the most ridiculous ridiculous thing I have ever heard. You know, I mean, in the 17th century, 18th century, 19th century, and Beethoven, Mozart, and Heine were there, if you didn't clap between movements, they would have thought they flopped. Somehow the idea that classical music became something you do like it's in church, you know, evolved in the 20th century, but it's ridiculous. It takes almost physical repression to not clap after one of these movements. Absolutely. Exactly. I, I always find it a sad thing. I always want to clap because it, those guys, they, they, they made a, a hell of a job and then no one claps. But next time, I, I will start clapping. Oh, absolutely. Rob, should we, should we bring back the clap? To me, you can clap wherever you want. You know, the other interesting I thing is... I say spread the clap. What do you think? Spread the clap. I, well, that's, I wouldn't say that's the best. <laughs> I wouldn't say that's your best slogan. You might want to rethink the wording a little bit. But I, I'm with you in spirit. <laughs> Or what about klatsche, was das Zeug hält? <laughs> that's that's um, clap as much as you can. <laughs> oh, I love that. Klatsch, was das Zeug hält. Ah, perfect. Yes, exactly. Well, thank you for this great line of inquiry. Thank you. Bye, Flora. If you have a question you can't find an answer to, give us a call, 833-RING-ELT, 833-RING-ELT. This episode of Every Little Thing was produced by Emily Foreman, Phoebe Flanagan, Annette Heist, and Flora Lichtman, with help from Nicole Pasulka, Doug Barron, Ryan Lentini, Ang Santos, and Roland Winkler. It was edited by Caitlin Kenny and Jorge Just. Scored by Dara Hirsch. Mixed by Dara Hirsch and Enoch Kim. Thanks to musicians Akiko Teramoto and Marcus Phillips. Every Little Thing is a Spotify original podcast. Spread the clap. Goodbye.